part one of our second interview, Dr. John Petroza chats with Dr. Jacques Denet. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy what we think are valuable lessons about our history, sparking innovation, and newer surgical applications of reproductive surgery. My name is John Petrosa. I am currently the Chief of the Division of Reproductive Medicine and IVF at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And I'm excited today and have the great honor of presenting and chatting with Dr. Jacques Donet. Donet is one of those rare clinicians in my mind who's really carved out a niche in the field of reproductive medicine because not only is he an astute researcher, he's also an incredible surgeon. Currently, he is Professor Emeritus at the Catholic University of Louvain, Brussels, Belgium. Hopefully I said that correct, Jacques. Yes. Um, he's head of the Department of Gynecology, and he's been head of gynecology since the mid-1980s, 1986. And I believe you're chair. You've been chair of that department since 1992. You're the founder of the Infertility Research Institute at the university, and your research interests have focused on tubal fertility, endometriosis, and ovarian transplantation. And you have an astounding 600 plus peer-reviewed journals that you've contributed to, which is phenomenal. I, there are very few people who have right. that many manuscripts that have been published. So that's an astounding feat. And, and we're very honored to have you here. So we're gonna start off with some fun stuff first, Dr. Donay. We're gonna start off by looking at some memories, some photos that you've shared with us. And hopefully you'll be able to walk us through what those photos are, who's in the photos, and perhaps the scenes, the scenarios, the events where these photos were taken. So I'm going to share this screen. We will share the slide now, the picture. I will share the slide. Here we go. Who is this young, handsome gentleman on the screen? Thanks first for your introduction, very kind introduction. And I send you this slide because, in fact, I was a resident in gynecology. At that time, it was a little bit more relaxed than now, you know, I was on call at the obstetric department, ready to make some uh, delivery. And uh, at that time, the residency take four years. And after that, I was sent as gynecologist to Germany. It explained why I'm in the uh, army. I was in the medical group and I was sent to Germany. And at that time, I was not very happy because I was 30, I was married, two children, and I was sent to Germany. That was, a I was a little bit disappointed. But finally, I met a lot of people there also from the U.S. Army, uh, because the U.S. Army was also in Germany, in Wiesbaden, and uh, at the hospital of Wiesbaden, we were at the hospital of Köln. And uh, for two years, I made a lot of delivery, finally, uh, I was as a gynecologist in the army, and it was a very good period because a lot of friends were there too, and I spent two years become coming back to the university. That's incredible. That's wonderful. So it looks like on this one picture, you're in your scrubs, you have your jacket on? Is that a, a post-busy yes. day bottle of beer or is that just some soda? What do you have there? Yeah. I have to confess that I asked <laughs> my secretary to try to remove this bottle. But at that time, you know, that there's a bottle of beer, I agree. And uh, during the night, 
we had not the permission to go to the restaurant. When we were on call, we were obliged to stay day and night for 48 hours in the same office, and that was my office. And we had the, the dinner, the lunch, and the breakfast we had in the, in the room. And that is a picture taken in the evening, and probably at that time, I drank a beer before going to sleep. Now, now, the one other thing I see in this photo are some test tubes with something inside the test tubes. Do you recall what that was? Systematically, you know, it's a test tube. And at that time, it's in 19, remember, 1972, 73. In fact, after each delivery, we took some blood from the umbilical cord, and these tubes were there in the office, and they will be sent the following morning to the lab. Yes, it's completely different from now. You cannot imagine. That was the reason why I send you this picture. Because when we imagine from 1972 to 2020, the evolution in all this department of obstetrics, completely different. But at that time, that was like that. Very relaxed. That's incredible. Well, I'm going to move on to the next slide. And can you tell that me what's going on here? That was the World Congress on Endometriosis. You have a Professor the Queen, Fabiola was invited, surrounding the Queen, Professor Brosens there, and myself. And then uh, here, Professor Bruyard, Michel Canis, Visibutram, John Rock, Dan Martin, Vernon, Schenken. And I don't know if you can see, that was also Mogisi. On yes. Slide. yes. And at that time, we had already at this World Congress organized in Brussels more than 1,600 participants. Why so many participants already? Because that was the year of the launching of the GnRH antagonist, GnRH agonist, sorry, the Zoladex and Decapeptide, and that was a promotion also. And we have a lot of uh, participants. But this photo, the, it's a Fantastic souvenir, because that was the first time, finally, that the expert in endometriosis were invited in a World Congress on endometriosis. And I don't know if you may recognize Michel Canis here, very young, and Maurice Bruyard. Yes. So that, at that picture, we had a fantastic uh, congress, and it was for me, the, I was quite young, and I was president with Ivo Brosens of this World Congress. And that was the, the start of really an exchange between the US gynecologist and the European gynecologist on this specific disease called endometriosis. I guess that was really the start of a really exciting collaboration. That's wonderful. And how were you able to get the queen to be there? The queen was invited and she spent some time at the meeting, in fact, and she was very interested when we discussed the pain, the pelvic pain due to the endometriosis, even in young women. She was really interested and we had a lot of support thereafter to promote the research, at least in our country. That's incredible. I mean, I look at this photo and I see some of, you know, along with you, some of the greats in, in reproductive surgery. It's an incredible... Yes group. I can only imagine with so many people there that this must have been a meeting of the minds. A lot of good ideas were probably generated at this meeting. You told me that you had some difficulty to recognize John Rock. 
<laughs> no, no, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I can see Dan Martin hiding in the back. And, and you know, if you yeah, hadn't yeah, mentioned his name, I, I probably would not have recognized him, how young he looked back then. Yeah, very young. Huh? Very yeah. young, very young. Well, let's move on to the next slide. Yes. What's then, going on here? 2001, you may recognize here Professor Barlow and here Professor Shaw, president of the Royal College. I was invited as a fellow, I was nominated as a fellow at UNDEM at the Royal College of Obstetric and Gynecology and uh, for the European people really to be nominated fellow at UNDEM at the Royal College represent a fantastic uh, honor. And that was made also, that was specific for me, that was a very exciting adventure because Professor Barlow and Professor Shaw involved at that time in the GNRH agonist research in endometriosis, we were uh, involved in the research, in the clinical trial, and that was really, for me, an excellent souvenir to be there with them. That's a wonderful photo. Was your family there with you on that day? Yes. Yeah, the family was invited. My wife was there, and it was a, a very big ceremony. You may imagine at the Royal College, you know, the, the, the British people are still... Uh, very much involved in the nice ceremony uh, with a lot of very formal and it's fantastic and it remains like that now in 2020 I, I know that it's still organized like in the past with a lot of very nice ceremonial that's wonderful and congratulations that's an incredible honor that was 20 years ago it probably seems like yesterday to you yeah to, to, to the 20 way well, yeah more than 20 years ago yes that's incredible so this is uh, a great picture. I mean, I'm assuming this is one of your patients? Yeah. This here, that was during the pregnancy, I follow uh, Wada, and here, that is the first picture. The day of the birth of the first uh, pregnancy, uh, here it's Tamara. We are allowed to show the picture of Tamara, no problem. And then Tamara was born in 2004 after transplantation of frozen ovarian transplant. In fact, Wada here, we have still a lot of very good contact with this family and uh, my department. She had a Notchkin disease. And uh, we start, in fact, the cryopreservation program. This, we start transplant, not the transplantation, we, the cryopreservation uh, program was started in 1996. And I have a nice story to tell because Bob Edwards, at that time, in 1996, came to Brussels in his symposium. And at that time, Gosden, who is now in the United States, was working in Edinburgh in the department of David Bird, and they've made cryopreservation of ovarian tissue in the sheep. And they made the first transplantation in the sheep with successful recovery of the ovarian function. And that was discussed in Brussels in 1996. And Bob Edwards told me, Jack, why you didn't, why you don't start with a program like that in your university? And Bob told me, you have a big unit of research, you have enough money to start, please start. And we start in 1996. Here, that is the first uh, a picture of Warda and his husband. And uh, Warda, and I know that she, I may call the story, Warda and Hodgkin disease. Mm stage three, but 
she was pregnant at that time. Gotcha. That very difficult decision because we should start the chemotherapy, but of course, that was the pregnancy, we have to stop the pregnancy before starting the chemotherapy. At that time, that was no other way. Uh, but before starting chemotherapy, we took a larger piece of one ovary. And in 2003, we re-implant the tissue in the pelvis. And 11 months later, she was pregnant. That was the big surprise. She came back at the consultation and she told us, yes, I had my menstruation sometime, but no anymore. And we did a test. Immediately, <laughs> we go to the ultrasound equipment and there was a very small embryo and she was pregnant and she delivered in 2004. That was the big story. And at that time, that is a lesson for all the gynecologists. Bob Edwards sent me a letter and he told me, he wrote me, Jack, now first, congratulations, but from now, you will know who is your enemy. And you will have a lot of enemies because when I started with in vitro fertilization, I had a lot of jealousy. People tried to kill me and you will have the same. Wow. And in fact, when you have so a first world experience, many people are jealous and try to destroy you. And that is the most difficult because it's a balance between the honor, the publication in the Lancet, everybody was happy, CNN was in the department, a lot, a lot of things. And on the other hand, the jealous people try to kill you. Are you sure that it's really from the ovarian transplantation that the baby is born? You know, that's always like that. And finally, the first proof that the ovarian transplantation is really a fact was from another pregnancy in a woman who had a bilateral anexectomy. There's no yeah. possibility that somebody from the remnant uh, is <laughs> active. Bilateral ophorectomy, we reimplant the tissue, it works, we make IVF after ovarian stimulation, and she had a baby. That was the first proof that, in fact, really, after cryopreservation of ovarian tissue, reimplantation allowed not only the recovery of the ovarian function, but also recovery of the fertility. And that is my best adventure. That's incredible. Great story. Great story. Did you get a lot of bad letters and feedback during that time? Jack, did you get a lot of people who are angry at you? Did Dr. Edwards' words, did they hold true? Yes. In fact, it's a, at that time, we had more or less, uh, now we are, we are doing a paper now with the five other centers. There are more than 200 live birds in the world from the uh, ovarian tissue cryopreservation. And now everybody is convinced. But imagine that between 2004 to 2007, 2008, I had to wait, I had a lot of criticism because yeah. systematically, when I present the data, somebody among the participants asked me the question, always the same question. Dr. Donnet, how can you prove that the baby is really born from the transplant and not from an ovulation from the so-called destroyed ovary? That right. was always the same question, but finally, from the other department in uh, Europe, the, from Denmark, from the group of Andersen, another group, 
a lot of transplantations were made, and finally, everybody was convinced of the efficacy. But that was really, really difficult because of the jealousy of the people at the beginning. Yeah, I believe it. Let's go on to this next photo. This is you in the yes. operating room. On the left, yeah. On the left, it's me. This is you right yes. here on the left. Yeah. How long? How long ago is this? Uh -huh. Oh, I will guess that is the OM one. It's surely, I will say, probably two thousand, more or less, uh, near between fifteen and uh, uh, twenty years ago. That was the OM one. In fact. I was at this time a consultant from an endoscopic company. I will not give the name. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> but you see that the, uh, the OR1 was uh, one of the first in Europe. And uh, had two OR1 like that, had two operating rooms like that. And uh, I could jump from a room to the other room with uh, my, the assistant uh, close and finish the surgery of staff in the other room. And so we were very active. And uh, finally, more or less, we operate uh, 1,500 cases a year wow. in the team. Well, yes. Most of them, obviously, by endoscopy. I know that at that time, when we had the first OR1, Harry Rich came and made surgery in my department in this room. And also a nice souvenir. A lot of people came also, like uh, Jean-Bernard uh, Dubisson, but Harry came and made a hysterectomy, of course. Huh? Sure. Make the most <laughs> that was a nice souvenir too. We spent uh, two or three days in Brussels, and we enjoyed a lot. Uh, you know Harry, it's always, it's always in good. At that time, he was in good health and uh, perfect was a jumping also with me from a room to the other room. Nice adventure. That's, that's wonderful. Now this is this that's is a picture of you outside the operating room. And yeah, there's some uh, famous people here along with you. Of Edwards. When uh, Tamara was born, we uh, made the first World Congress of uh, Fertility Preservation. Victor Gommel was surely one of the gynecologists was a friend, but when I was very young, he was already head of department in Vancouver. At that time, he was organizing a workshop on microsurgery. And a microsurgery was organized by Victor Gommel in the Canada and Bob Winston here in Europe. And after that, I had good meeting and a good collaboration at the International Society for Gynecological Endoscopy with Victor Gommel. He became a friend, like uh, Bob uh, Edwards. And Bob Edwards was, of course, invited because I have to recognize that he pushed me to start the program of fertility preservation. He was uh, president of honor of this symposium, and as that was good friends, both are good friends. They were invited in my garden. And Victor, only these two people were invited in my, for dinner. You recognize four glasses because there is also the glass of my wife. Eh? <laughs> and uh, they spent, finally, they spent an evening telling the story from the army, from the world, all this story with the uh, IVF. And they stay until three o'clock in the morning in my house. Uh, and we have a lot of fun. And again, it's an excellent uh, souvenir. And that was, I sent this picture because that was uh, 
also always my pleasure when I still meet Victor Gommel, who have in memory did a very nice evening with Bob. That's wonderful. That's a, that's a great story. And this, you guys look so comfortable here drinking your wine. It looks like it's probably the summer. The grass is green. It looks beautiful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, so who's, who's this? This Yamala. guy looks like a rock star next to you. Look at that yeah, hair. Cameron. <laughs> oh, the story with Cameron, and he knows that very well, started a long time ago, a long time ago, in the late 80s. And you have to imagine that in the late 80s, everybody was speaking about peritoneal endometrios and ovarian endometrios. But in fact, I guess, and I believe that at that time, start also the increased prevalence of deep endometrios nodule. And probably a relation with epigenetic, we have no time to go into details of the epigenetic and endometrios, but that was the deep nodule. And at that time, we were in conflict, Dr. Nedzat and myself, because systematically, Cameron defended the bowel resection of the rectal resection. And I start with the shaving technique. And the first publication was in the early 90s with the shaving technique about a series of 200 cases, which was at that time the huge series. Year after year, there was systematically an old symposium on endometrios. There was a session on deep endometrios, and there was always a debate organized by the president of the Congress, Dr. Nedzat, in favor of bowel resection, and Dr. Donet in favor of shaving. <laughs> and that was, you can imagine, the argument between the radical surgery versus the non-radical surgery, the risk of recurrence, the risk of complication. And in fact, the debate still exists, still exists now. And you look at the paper, infertility, sterility, year after year, there is a debate on bowel resection, disc excision, shaving, this, but this debate is not new. And that was a picture in Turkey. Kamram was there. At that time, he published a paper recognizing that the shaving technique gave less complication and more pregnancy than bowel resection. That was a paper from the family Netzat. And finally, the picture represents that we agree. Finally, we agree together with the same problem. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And, and I, I just smile when I look at this picture because I look at that hair and, and that's, you know, I, knowing him now, that was a pretty uh, interesting hairdo on Dr. Najat. <laughs> but I guess that I believe that several years he was uh, with long hair like that. Yes. Yeah. No, it's not, not the case anymore, I guess. Huh? Not, not so much. Yeah, it doesn't seem as long. He does have a slick back, but not as, <laughs> not as long as this. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to go back a little bit further into your childhood. I think you, were you born and raised in Belgium? I'm uh, born in, uh, in Belgium in 1947. I started my uh, medical school at the age of uh, 17 at the Catholic University of Louvain. At that time, it took seven years to be a medical doctor. I was then resident in uh, the same university to start the gynecology. And uh, at that time, you have to know that the French-speaking and Dutch-speaking University of Louvain, which is sometimes confusing for you, we have such a small country, and we have two universities of Louvain, 
but there is the Catholic University of Louvain and the Catholic University of Leuven. Ah. 50 years ago, there was only one university and had the, had the possibility to, to meet Ivo Brossens, Professor Brossens, who was uh, one of the head of the department for reproductive uh, medicine in the Flemish, the Dutch part of the university. And uh, I was in the French part. But we had excellent contact and we maintained it's thanks to him, thanks to Professor Brossens, surely, that I start also the research in reproductive surgery. But at the end of my residency at the Catholic University of Louvadis uh, in 75, yes, in 75, I was called by the head of the Department of Surgery. And this head of the Department of Surgery, Professor Kesten, told me, Jack, you know, I'm fed up to be called by gynecologists from the moment that there is a small hole in the bowel of some adhesions, you are gynecologists. But I ask you to stay at the university, but before, to spend the two years in my department. So that I was gynecologist and I came back like a small resident in the department of surgery. And uh, for two years, I spent uh, a part of my life to make a bowel resection for cancer, uh, uh, bowel surgery, uh, liver surgery, this the abdominal surgery for two years. And when Professor Kesten told me, you should do that, and then you will be a good gynecologist surgeon. Because, and it's true that when there was a lot of adhesions uh, of uh, if I should do uh, a bowel resection for in a case of ovarian cancer or whatever, I never call again the, the abdominal surgeon because I had finally the double specialization. And when uh, I guess that for the future, it's also important for the young people. You are a reproductive surgeon. I guess that we should be able to continue to to teach to a younger resident to make surgery and top level surgery. And of course, there are so many things to do in, a repro in reproductive uh, medicine, the IVF, the endocrinology, the surgery, that it's impossible for one person to be able to do at the top level everything. So that uh, more and more we should select what we want to do and try to be the top in the section we have chosen. That's, ex that's, that's excellent advice. And, and I think that story for me, Jack, hits home because when I was just out of my fellowship, it was a very unique situation in that I was by myself for a lot of my surgeries, freshly out of fellowship. And one of the people that I really found and attached myself to was one of the general surgeons who was doing a lot of, of surgery at the time. He was a trauma surgeon and I sort of hung on to his coattails and would go into the operating room with him. And I really learned a lot. I think I developed a comfort level, like you said, of doing things that I probably wasn't going to be able to do just as a regular reproductive surgeon. So I think that's great advice. And I also hear what you're saying, that as we start to have more and more things that we do, you do want to have a niche that you can develop and a niche that you can call your own, something that you can be very skilled at, but at the same time, maybe develop along those lines a research niche, as you have, 
that you can really expand and develop a reputation. So that, that's wonderful advice for a lot of our younger surgeons. That, that's incredible. So when you were growing up in Belgium, when you were younger, what, what were your parents like? Were your parents physicians? Did they push you to become a doctor? No, no. <laughs> I was the only doctor in the family. My, my father was uh, in the business, the bank business, and my mother was my mother. Still, <laughs> <laughs> she was responsible of my education, and so she helped, she helped me a lot. I start the generation of the doctor. I have uh, my son, Olivier, is also a gynecologist. Yes. He continued the, the, the research uh, with me. He's in France, but we still collaborate uh, uh, in the clinical trial. We try to collaborate for uh, the redaction of manuscript. I push him to continue to do it because I guess that keeping in mind always what is the future, maintain your brain at the younger stage. I hope that next year, one of my great daughter will start also the medical college. So oh, that I was the first in the Donne family, but now maybe uh, <laughs> <laughs> the people will succeed to follow me. Well, I, I, I'm very jealous because none of my three children want to go into medicine. I think they saw that their, their father was working too hard and they decided they want a little easier life. So you should be very proud of your, your son and very proud of your granddaughter. That's very, very good. Yes. But when my son Olivier was 16, he told, I will never do the medicine. You are never home. I don't, <laughs> see, I don't know my father. And, uh, but he's doing exactly the same now. <laughs> <laughs> so so he, did, he did like what you did. Eventually, he liked what you did because he saw that you enjoyed it and that you had a passion for it. So why did you decide to go into medicine? Nobody in your family was a doctor. What made you decide to go down this path? In fact, uh, when uh, I was uh, adolescent, when uh, I was adolescent, I met uh, somebody, a young uh, girl, and she had uh, leukemia. And uh, she died from the leukemia after bone marrow transplantation because imagine more than 15, well, nearly, yeah, yeah nearly 16, 15, more than 50 years ago, a bone marrow transplantation was not easy. A lot of uh, people died and she had a leukemia and uh, she died. It was surely one of the events which orientated my life in the medicine. And finally, I started the medicine. I was very, very happy Gynecologist was not my first choice. I would like to be surgeon. Surgery, sure. But you will not believe me. Orthopedic surgeon, traumatologist. <laughs> and during the last year, the last year, I was obliged to make a stage in the obstetric department. And I made my first delivery as a student. And I was so impressed by the beginning of the life that I decided immediately, I say, I should become an obstetrician. And I became a gynecologist, gynecologist and obstetrician. And finally, at the age of 35, I abandoned the obstetric because it was impossible to do surgery uh, all the day 
if uh, a uh, uh, delivery at the same time of during the night or caesarean section. Both are not compatible if you have a lot of surgery to do. And this I decided to stop with obstetric at that time and to devote all my, to devote my life to research and surgery. That's wonderful. So when you were deciding to become a gynecologist, who did you look up to? Who were your mentors? My main? Your, your mentors, your teachers. Who were the people uh, that guided you? As I told you, my main teacher was uh, uh, Professor Schockart. Schockart was the head of department at the Catholic University. And his father was also head of department and his great father. And one of them, as an inventor of the forceps. He, he teach me the obstetrics. And uh, finally, because we were a mixed university with the French speaking and the Flemish speaking, we had several uh, prof teachers. And uh, from that came also uh, a different view, you know, not only one was responsible for the, to teach me, there was a lot of uh, different prof, and we have a lot of experienced uh, people to teach us all obstetrics and the gynecological surgery. And as I told you, at the end of my residency, I spent another two years for surgery. abdominal surgery. And yeah. finally, the result, I guess, was not too bad. Not too bad. You did, you did good for yourself. Now, do you remember, Jack, your, your first laparoscopy? Uh, yes, yes, yes. I was, in fact, you will not believe me, <laughs> but I was really, really young, young resident. This, it is in the year 72, 73, and I was sent, and I was sent to Amsterdam, while to the Vrij Universiteit, to learn Flemish, to learn <laughs> Dutch, because I was from the French part of Belgium, but I was in Leuven and had to make delivery in Dutch-speaking women. Mm. So that at least I should at least... Know some Flemish. <laughs> some, some words. And the prof was, of obstetric was not very happy. And he told me, Dr. Donet, I will send you uh, several months to Amsterdam. And when you come back, you will be able to speak to the Dutch-speaking women. Okay, I say yes. And that was the start of the laparoscopy. And we did the, the first laparoscopy. And the laparoscopy was used in Amsterdam only to coagulate the fallopian tube. And that was, and I, when I came back uh, to, to Louvain, I said, we should do a lot of things with that. And uh, uh, that was really the start of the use of laparoscopy, not only for diagnosis, because we start with diagnosis, laparoscopy, but to start to do something. Uh, and when I start to vaporize the small lesions of endometriosis, I was so happy. You know, lesions of two, two or three millimeters. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> we couldn't imagine that 15 years later, we will remove part of the bowel, big nodule, big kist, uterus, so that, in fact, I know that the abdominal surgeon will be not happy with that, but the, the laparoscopic surgery was invented by gynecologists. Oh, I, I, you know, as gynecologists, we know that, and you're absolutely right. I don't think the surgeons appreciate that. That's absolutely correct. 
And, and, and one of the things that I, I remember, you know, I, I remember when I was first learning laparoscopy, I was training in a very poor indigent hospital and our instrumentation wasn't the best. Um, and so we still had some of those old teaching laparoscopes. You probably remember those with the two, the two optics where we were both looking, you and your assistant, your heads were butting each other. Yeah, yeah. Those were the days. I'm sure you did a lot of people, but it was. And uh, finally, it's with uh, the the video laparoscopy that we can uh, uh, teach to the other people. But it was not easy. We were with the assistant the same sides of the of the table, looking. <laughs> and just for us, one of the big uh, advantage came from the use of uh, the camera. The yeah. camera represent really fantastic increase of the technique. What are some of the key discoveries, the key innovations in laparoscopy that have moved it from what you were doing in 1975 to what you're seeing now in 2021? I believe that there was a, really a lot of improvement. It also in the quality of the optic, the definition of the resolution of the picture was uh, incredible. And all the equipment, in fact, from the CO2 laser to the harmonic scalpel to the ultrasound, all these equipment allow you to make finally by endoscopy what we did in the past by laparotomy. And uh, in fact, there are, for me, there are not a specific improvement, but from the moment that we start to do uh, surgery by laparoscopy, a lot of new options came available all together. And uh, we were able to do it uh, easily. And uh, I guess that the technique improved by itself, by the use of the gynecologist. We start with the small lesions and then we were more and more and more confident so that most of the endoscopies from my generation, they start with a logical learning curve, step by step, yeah. because we ignore when we start what was possible to do it. Imagine the first revolution when Harry Rich uh, defended the first uh, hysterectomy by laparoscopy. Uh, that was uh, several years later. Everybody was doing that. Yes. But what is important to mention that in my department, more or less 95 percent, 95-95% of the hysterectomy for benign disease were performed by laparoscopy. But you are still, and I'm sure that is the same in US, there are still some countries, some cities where the rate of laparotomy for hysterectomy is more than 60-70 percent. And it's also our responsibility, your responsibility, John, still my responsibility to teach young people to do it by, and there are still too many laparotomy for benign disease, and it's a battle, and continuous battle to force the people to change their mind. No, no, you're, abs you're absolutely right. And, and I think there are areas in Massachusetts where in Boston, most things are done laparoscopically, which is great. But if you go to the other part of the state, more things are done through laparotomy. So even in a, in a state like Massachusetts that we think is very 
modern and sophisticated, we still see these discrepancies. So you're absolutely right.